Welcome to the Dental Amigos podcast with Dr. Paul Goodman and attorney Rob Montgomery, taking you behind the scenes of the dental business world, all the things you didn't learn in dental school but wish you had. Rob is not a dentist and Paul is not a lawyer, but since Rob is a lawyer, we need to tell you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not and will not create an attorney-client relationship. As is always the case, you should formally consult with legal counsel before proceeding with any legal matter. Learn more about The Dental Amigos at www.thedentalamigos.com. And now, here are The Dental Amigos. So... Where do you find a good associate? It, uh, this is one of my favorite topics. Other than Paul Goodman's bag yeah, of associates. Yeah, yeah, bag, yes, right? I know. But I, I'm part of it, and I give a good lecture on this. And this, this world has changed. I said finding a job in dentistry is a lot like dating. You know, if you needed, I give, I pose this, pose this question to the group, and I said, you know, the, the, a lot of times the residents are equally suffering from inertia. I mean, the young dentists, it's very interesting. This is just important to touch on. And, this, and I'm a dentist, too. So we went to high school. Most of us did fairly well. You know, not different than the law, law field. Then we went to college and we said, what do we do next? And we applied to dental school and that made us comfortable. We said, which dental school do we get into? And we applied to the dental schools we got in. And then we said, which residency to apply to? This makes you very, dentist very comfortable. What do I do next? Let me fill out a form, tell people how smart I am, and I'll go to that place. But as soon as residency ended, and this is a real issue, I, I think this is, I was thinking about this last night about our business of dentistry, demystifying business. Most college graduates are thrust into the business world to some degree in, at age 22, 23. They get a job in human resources. They get a good job. They get a bad job. By the time they're 26 or 27, they might have been around the block. But now dentists are not coming out into the real world until they're 27, 28 years old. And using that example, they haven't exercised their business muscles. So they think, okay, where do I apply next, Paul, for my job? And I said, well, there's no place to apply. You got to just go out there and find one. And uh, it's a lot like dating, you know. If you, if you, I say to them, I, I'll say this on January first, two thousand eighteen, June thirtieth, you have to find someone to. I'll say the, I use, I'll use the term seriously date, or else you live in a cardboard box. <laughs> I say so that, that this is more serious than dating, right? I say if you don't find someone by June, July first, two thousand eighteen, you have to live in a cardboard box. And they say, what are you talking? About? I say, well, you have your loans, and I say this residency program. One of the reasons I'm just so pro GPR and AGD. It gives them this home to hide in for a year. So they go to dental school and they get paid, let's just say, $50,000 a year. They get $50,000 a year medical insurance. They work for a big hospital. They don't have to decide to do anything. So that it's actually a very comfortable life. And if you live in Philadelphia, you can manage manage on that. But once that time ends, you're on your own. And uh, somehow they come to me sometimes a month. I mean, this has happened. I've been teaching there for 12 years. They come to me on... May 15th and say, I need a job in four weeks. Can you help me find one? I'm like, no, that's too, it's too late. So I say, how would you find it? We have a whole thing. There's no Paul Goodman bag of employers. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to do. Sometimes they've been taken. Yeah. The, the, you know, this is all timing. It's all like dating. So, you know, you would use the internet, which is now very popular in dating. So use the internet. So you, I tell them to sign up for things like dental town, any, any job boards, uh, ask people who might know dentists looking, which are supply reps, transition brokers like me. And then also just make it known that you're out there looking for a dental date, meaning uh, I've seen creative people send re- uh, cover letters and resumes to 40 dentists in a, within two miles of where they live in Philadelphia. And sometimes that turns up someone because, you know, we're, we're living with two different generations. And I, I think I used this joke before, but, you know, my daughter Daphne was three, probably going to make fun of me for not sending holograms instead of text messages. So, right. you know, you can't blame the 62-year-old dentist who's just working hard and tired. 
who might just have an email account and he's doing fine, but he, he has no idea how to find an associate. They come to me for that too. So a letter could cross his desk and says, young motivated residents looking for a position in Philadelphia two and a half days a week. And um, I help them do that. And sometimes that is hit. So it's a, you have to put a lot of lines in the water to find a job. And if same thing for the associate, same thing for the owner, Dennis, my message is both parties start way too late. Meaning they, they have this perception, the, the position can be filled on either end in a much shorter time frame than it's available because you know, you know Dennis well, Rob, they don't yeah. all get along. So it's also putting the personalities together. Yeah, that's interesting. So what should uh, a practice look for in an associate? I mean, that, that's super important too, because we, I see, and I think these, these Facebook groups are just fantastic. And I mean, I think they're awesome how they're connecting people and people are talking to me from Australia, but sometimes they'll put out a, a position. I need a general dentist four days a week in Oklahoma, right? And they'll just say that, then that means anybody who's a general dentist looking for a job may want to apply for that. So if I was coaching that person, I'd say, I need you to put this down. I'm looking for a general dentist four days a week that loves to do extractions because in your practice, if they do extractions, you're already going to, you're going to cut out half of your candidates and save yourself time because what you need from a dentist in your practice is to be the dental chef. And if they don't know how to make nachos, right? You got a problem. If you're, if you're you can't make nachos, you cannot <laughs> yeah, be in Paul right, Goodman's yeah. office. So, uh, con- That's the first question yeah, in the interview, right? And, uh, yeah, right, exactly. You it's like nachos? A, yeah, you, do, you, do you like nachos? Can we go out for nachos on every Friday? It's a big part of our team building experience, but uh, they need to be able to execute the dental work you need them to execute and want to. So that's a, back to the needs and wants. First, they have to be able to do it. And then secondly, they, ha- they have to want to do it. So for example, if I have a position where 30% of their week is doing hygiene and cleanings, some dentists find that relaxing. I think it's a great way to meet the patient. Nothing goes wrong during a cleaning. You get to talk to them. You get to build relationships. But I myself actually might not be a great candidate for that position because I haven't done cleanings in a long time. I am not someone who likes doing them. So I probably, you know, as a young dentist, I would have done it. But now sometimes we have dentists seven or eight years in practice looking for jobs and it's a bad fit. You know, the round, you know, square peg, round hole type of scenario. So the, when you're looking, what are you looking for an associate? It's really first got to be about the type of procedures you want them to do. Then secondly, it's got to be about them and their personality type. And you're going to know that on these interview processes where you're going to sit across from someone. Be, oh, that's what I have to say too, because my associates I re- really enjoy spending time with, and you know I, I did have a little bit of a advantage in that I knew them from teaching and, and programs. But we spend a lot of time together. I mean, just outside of making money or not making money or seeing patients, we are texting, emailing, and calling each other on a with a high frequency. So it's not always an easy thing to determine, but if you feel like you don't really like the person sitting across from you at the restaurant talking about your practice or sitting across from you at your desk in your office, it's not a good person to hire because they're going to be a big, they're become a big part of your life. Yeah, I mean, it's not a big enough workplace to hire. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not like you can go into your own corners and you're also working on patients together. You're dealing with staff together. And uh, I think what, just getting back to your point from the beginning, it's, it's like, it's super important that the owner dentist it, this, I don't want this to come up the right way, sticks up for the associate more than the staff initially. And not, not that they discard the staff's feelings, but they have to really get behind the associate. So if your hygienist from 30 years says the associate came in and thought the patient only needed three fillings, and I said five fillings, you say, that's okay, everybody's a little different, Let's, let me take a look. Because I think a lot of times these situations fail because the associate is the new kid on the, new person on the block. 
new person in this dental family. And that's not an easy position to be in, even right. if you're the quote unquote doctor, you know. Right. So, so after you've spent all that time vetting people and, and spending time trying to, to, to hire the, the, the person that you ultimately hire and train them, yeah, it kind of makes sense to complete the, uh, the cycle there and try to put them in the position to succeed, right? Yeah. You know, don't just leave them high and dry right, yeah. and say, hey, let's see if they make and, it. And it's it's, it's too much investment. It's a daily, in what it's that a daily process, right? That, that's what, actually, that's a really good point that you said that because I say that both to the associates and the owner dentist. It's very difficult to disengage, and you see this, and it's not even a legal thing. Taking a job, getting all into it, getting the scrubs, learning the office staff, and then trying to dis needing to disengage from it because it's not a right fit three months later is a big problem because you might not always be able to find another job, find another associate. And then all of a sudden it's the wrong time of the year right, to find yeah. a good associate. So it's, it's, right? it's, these are things that I can help with up front, people. Like you can help with up front. So uh, that's important to recognize too. One thing that you said, and I think this comes back to, I'm seeing like a thread here, is you know, being realistic again. You know, taking the time to plan the relationship. And we see this a lot where people don't do this enough. Where you're talking about in an employment agreement or a potential buy-in, a lot of times people don't like to ask difficult questions. You know, it's sort of like, uh, geez, I uh, I married somebody who wanted to have 15 kids. Right, right. Uh, was that a surprise to you? Yeah, well, right. we didn't talk about yeah, right, it until exactly. after we got yeah, yeah, married. Yeah. That may have been a discussion that you should have had before. <laughs> right. But you know, some people don't like to talk about the difficult things, and then as a result, again, expectations are not properly aligned, which leads to you know, misunderstanding and dispute and causes relationships, whether employer-employee or partnership relationships, to fail. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such an important point that can bring us into two different topics, two, the same type of topic from each of our angles is how to compensate the associate, what to compensate the associate. Yeah, how do you and, know? And, 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 well, it's a good question. First of all, all the owners out there, if it's your first associate that you want to bring into your practice for whatever reason, it's going to cost you money. So your take-home pay for the year that you bring in your associate will be less than the take-home pay before. So if you live a life owner dentist where that is a non-negotiable thing because for whatever reason, you have kids in college, you just don't want to do it, then do not bring in an associate because there's a cost to bringing in an associate. There's a myth buster there. Right. How often do you encounter uh, dentists that are hiring people that don't know that? Basically 100% of the time on that end it's because the, the owner dentist you know, the dental offices, you know, they're no different than any other service industry where you, you know, making, like making pizza. You make all the pizza, you sell the pizza, and you have money left over. And now if you have someone else coming in to eat from that pie on the profit center, you have to share that. And if you don't have more people to eat this pizza, more patients to come in and purchase it, you're going to have to share yours. And right. a lot of times, you're, so a lot of times bringing in an associate is an advantage from a lifestyle perspective, not a financial perspective when it's your first associate or with your first foray into doing this. Uh, and that's a really hard thing for people to get over, and especially the owner dentist, because they say, what do you mean? I'm gonna give them all my extra patients. I said, oh, you mean your extra patients that are non-productive? You know, the people that, you know, <laughs> get to a filling at eight o'clock at night and you're yeah. gonna keep all the implant crowns? And, and that's, I think, when you say, how do you know what to pay someone? You have to sit down and dentists talk, in our world, we talk about treatment plans. Rob Montgomery comes in, he needs two implants, he needs two implant crowns, he needs a night guard, here's his treatment plan. It's gonna cost him $8,000. You need to make a treatment plan for your associate, okay? This is, we're gonna have you here three days a week, we're gonna guarantee you $500 a day, that's $75,000 a year. We're gonna pay you 35% of collections minus 35% of lab. This is what this is gonna look like because you know, it's the under-promise and over-deliver because a lot of times the owner dentist, and this is done with good intentions, but they just over-promise what the associate is gonna earn. 
And then when they fall short of that, it really creates hard feelings. Tell me a little bit, about, Rob, about, because this is a really hot topic too, the uh, concept, and this is the, oh, the younger dentist company with this, that they're going to be an independent contractor versus an employee. Yeah, it's, we really see this uh, abused a lot. I think a lot of people have the misconception, when I say people, these are you know, practice owners, that if you give somebody an independent contractor agreement, and it says at the top of the agreement, independent <laughs> contractor agreement, and you give them a 1099, that magically you've created an independent right. contractor relationship. And um, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the IRS has their own view as to whether or not somebody's an independent contractor or an employee. And it's not just the IRS, but uh, the workers' uh, comp insurance, uh, unemployment uh, programs, unemployment compensation programs, that is. And uh, there are tests. And basically, you know, they look at the substance over the form. So just because you call somebody an independent contractor doesn't make them one. They're going to look and see what the nature of the relationship is. And if it's really just an employee-employer relationship, they're going to say that potentially that relationship is misclassified, which can lead to the practice having to pay fines and penalties to the federal government, state governments, it could cause problems with, uh, with insurance. And at the end of the day, you just don't really save any money. Yeah, and you, create a lot of, you can create a lot of headaches, hassles, and problems for both parties. Getting back to my favorite example of nachos, you know, if you're an independent contractor, I know that how dentists behave and how people behave. So if you're an independent contractor and they give you 100 plates of nachos, you're supposed to share 30 of those plates with the IRS. But if you're like me and you consume and eat all of those plates at the end of the year, and this happened to one of my uh, colleagues and it was a real situation, they said, where's our 30 plates of nachos? Where's our $30,000? He hadn't engaged an accountant and he had a real issue where he had a problem with paying his taxes. Whereas if he was an employee, those taxes would have been taken out from him along the way and he would have just avoided a really big problem in his life. Right, you know? right. And, planning, once again. Yeah, planning. Know? So that's it's why, you crazy. know, touching base. Yeah, <laughs> right. touching. So I think, don't you know, figure. I think on both parties, you don't see a lot of, you don't, you probably don't encounter a lot of situations where independent contractor status can really be uh, defended in a general dentist situation. Yeah, generally not. I yeah. mean, uh, if, you know, some, some specialists can be independent contractors. You know, if you have sort of the, the roving oral surgeon who's in four different practices right. or maybe a, an orthodontist, uh, like some of those relationships and one of can the things, be. I think that's important to point out because I have, we have in-house uh, in specialists and we don't even always classify them as independent contractors, but that role is a much different role than the general dental associate because the general dental associate most of the time is counting on that place for their livelihood. So it's just a different practitioner for what you're offering them versus the one day a week oral surgeon who has their own practice and practices in your practice. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's one of the tests, you know, yeah. whether or not the employer has control and authority over that, uh, that person. You know, yeah. and if, you know, if they tell them when they have to work, how they have to work, where they have to work, right. well, that's starting to that's sound employee, like, right. yeah. And sort of like the extreme independent contractor relationship example is the IT guy. The IT guy shows up when he yeah, feels like showing yeah, up, stays yeah. as long as he does. Yeah, were, I have no idea what he yeah, did. They all, they, yeah. And he's gone and well, everything works. Great. You know, 
and you send them a 1099 at the end of the year and you pay them and he's an independent contractor. Those guys, the landscapers, they all got together like nobody ever be on time. No one be accountable for appointments. We'll just have a great system. And they do it. The IT guy's a, a perfect example. You don't know when he's coming. You don't know when he's going. You don't know what he did. He is, uh, he is a free agent, independent contractor. But, you know, I think a lot of times uh, people fall into the trap that, oh, well, I'm only going to hire them two days a week, you know, so therefore they're an independent contractor. And I say, no, you know, there is <laughs> yeah. such a thing called a part-time employee. Right, yes. And, uh, you know, as with anything, I, I'm obviously more risk-averse by virtue of what I do, but I would hate to just wonder whether five years from now the government or some agency, tax agency, is going to come after me and say, you've been doing this wrong all this time, and now we want all that money back plus interest Plus penalties, and I'm not I'm not a fan of looking over my shoulder with that I, kind of I, stuff. I totally agree. If I could just could just wrap this up this part with you, but because I'm interested in this, you know, part of what we're doing is trying to demystify or demythify the business journey. This is a, just a genuine question: Who tells these owner dentists to classify them as independent contractors? Are these things they've heard at courses? I mean, I'm, I'm actually because their accountants usually aren't telling them this, right? Or, or are they? I mean, I'm actually. I guess just there totally probably are some accountants that sort of. Let them do it, yeah. for lack of a better way to describe it. You know, they they don't they don't encourage them strongly to not do it. Uh, I think a lot of times maybe they're just not you know, talking to people and getting yeah. the right advice. It's very tempting, you know, like yeah. hey, I don't have to pay withholding, and I don't have to match right. the FICA. That's I don't have to pay benefits. This sounds good, yeah. you know. And but as you said before, you know, the government wants their thirty plates of nachos, and they didn't yeah. set up the tax laws in this country for people just to kind of like figure out their own loopholes. You know, yeah, the loopholes have been closed. Yeah, you know? like, I, it's just not up to us to say like, well, that's the way the government wants it, but I'm going to do it my way and, you know, and I'm, going to, I'm going to game the system. And all, additionally, what's an important point is the mere saying that a, an associate dentist is an independent contractor or employee is meaningless as who's winning in that scenario financially. Because you know, you can create a relationship where you make it as, you know, as even Steven as possible with, you know, I think there's this concept that owners think if they don't make an in, someone an independent contractor, they're immediately losing money on the whole deal. Yeah. You can make an arrangement with the percentage of collections, percentage of lab to try to take a broad picture, look at it, and make it make sense unrelated to the independent contractor part. Usually the people who are most exposed though are the associates because they're usually getting less than what they should be getting. Right, exactly. And, and then you talked about sort of the tax planning and you know, yeah. to get the, the $50,000 tax bill in, right, in yeah. on April 15th. And then, you know, you're, well, why did I buy that expensive car? Right, yeah, you know, I couldn't really you know, afford it. Over. I think that's yeah. super important. Yeah. You know, we've talked a lot about how to find an associate. Uh, how do you keep an associate, it's, especially a good one? Yeah, right? You spend good, all this time yeah. and money yes. trying to, to find the right person. What do you do so that they don't leave? I think that I, I can use an. I've only. I think I've mentioned. I've only had really three jobs in my entire life: dentist, restaurant server, and for one year when I was 16 years old, my friend's dad got us a job at Bloomberg as interns. I did nothing useful for Bloomberg in any way, but I learned a lot from him. And this is He was just an amazing company. This is 1994. So, I mean, Bloomberg it kind of invented the internet. If anyone you know remembers this, the, we had these Bloomberg it wasn't computers. Yeah, I mean, not Al Gore. I mean, they, you know, they had the Bloomberg computers and news would scroll by. And one of the classic ones where I was sitting there was actually when Monica Seles was stabbed at the French Open that time. And we knew before everybody else. And so right. I thought that was cool. But Bloomberg, I was just, I was in there as an intern and I saw all these Ivy League educated young people 
And I mean, this is 1949. I mean, everyone was pretty open. I said, you know, how much money does Bloomberg pay you? And, and you know, I think it was like, you know, $20,000. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem like much money. But he would really invest his time, energy, and effort into these young, smart people. And then someone would move up in his company and some would go elsewhere and do what they wanted to do. And I think that's just a great way to lead your dental career. I mean, there's these owner dentists who would say to me, I, can you find me an associate and can you make sure they want to buy in? I go, well, that's a pretty intense thing for me to say to someone yeah. on the phone when they've never met you. Getting back to the dating analogy or comparison, if I said, hey, uh, this, so this dentist would like to date you, but he wants to make sure you want to marry him later, right? And right. It's just, do you it's really just, want yeah. the person right. to and do also, that? That's, I say that, the that owner response dentist, to that, keep, right? Just keep that to yourself too because they say, I want them to buy in later. So the, the way to retain an associate, I think, dentist are good at what they do on people, good to great at what they do on people. They have very little business training in their life unless they've done it somewhere else. So when they come to work in your office, the way to retain them is to make it, an, make it a positive part of their life on multiple levels, okay? So you have to have fair compensation and you have to explain to them why it's fair. So maybe there's an associate out there who thinks, I'm gonna come out and make $200,000 a year. I would say, good luck to you. That's not an easy job to, to find. There's probably, it's fair to say that you can identify a job that's going to pay you between ninety-five dollars to $140,000 a year. So if you hear that range when you come out, that's compensation that's reasonable. I know, but hopefully we go country and uh, uh, worldwide with this. So I know sometimes in the Midwest, you can work for DSO and make, you know, this is what, this is what happens is um, someone, I will say something like that, ninety-five dollars to $140,000 a year. And a young dentist will say to me, but I have this friend who works in Texas who makes $210,000 a year. I'm like, how many of those are there? Just right. one of him? Right. Can we go with the other 50 people that make in that category? But you know, the, Everybody the, likes the, to find the unicorn. Right, yeah. They, 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 they want to know how they're going to be the unicorn. So uh, yeah. the compensation has to be reasonable and fair, but it's got to be more than that. You got to make them a part of your team and your life in a way that's positive, where they want to keep working for you. And a lot of that has to do with the owner dentist really be willing to not, I mean, to share. I would say to my associates, you're getting all this free value-added practice management advice by being around me all the time. Because I'm telling you, like, and I do this all the time. It's true. Here's what happened with this staff member. Here's how I have to make a decision. What decision would you make in this? The decision that you feel you want to make might be the wrong one because I've made that many a times. Right. I feel that I should let this person off for their kids play on Friday, but then if I don't let everybody off for their kids play, I got a problem. But then if I never let anyone off for their kids play, I, so this is just an example of things that happen to owner dentists that if you share this with your associate, engage them, I think they really feel like, hey, I'm learning something here, like a Bloomberg or, you know, if you work in the restaurant, I mean, the restaurant industry to me has so many great things about how chefs learn. And I mean, I know that industry is very volatile and they could go out of business, but chefs will work for an owner like Steven Starr here in Philadelphia for a period of time and then either stay in the organization or take those skills and go elsewhere. But it's more than just what they get paid to be a chef. It's the things they're learning while they're there that you can't find in a book. You can't even find on a podcast. You can only live. And I think if you're an owner dentist and you want to retain someone, you have to find out, you know, what things you can do for this person that doesn't show up on the proverbial stat sheet, like a sports team, sports, you know, the guy, uh, and they always want to have him on their football team because he just has this other thing that makes the team better. So you want to be providing this to your associates because they can't get those things elsewhere. Uh, so I think that reasonable compensation, willingness to share what you know and learn with them. Uh, and I think it's a life situation thing that you have, like you said, a discussion up front. So, 
there's some, the world is very different nowadays with young professionals because dentists may not be the breadwinner in the relationship or the, or the, you know, the higher earning partner. And sometimes it's not even about earning. You know, I have a, I have a resident whose uh, husband is a professor at Penn and he may have to go somewhere else in two years. So, but she needs a job for two years. So she may be perfect for, uh, fit for somebody who has multiple associates in their practice, but she's not going to be a good fit for that guy who's looking for someone to promise him to have someone buy in. So I think those discussions up front are important. And it should be pretty obvious if you have those discussions, you should be able to connect those dots. Yeah, it's right. Easy, connecting right? dots are perfect. You know, I I I I uh, I mentioned this in our other podcast about when I go, I don't love to when when a buyer wants to meet a seller. Many times they want me there. Uh, and I realize sometimes I don't like to be there because I'm like a third wheel on a date and right. it's, it's, it's strange. Sometimes it's good, sometimes not. But with the, I actually would always like to be, there's no real world where this exists, but I would actually always like to be there for the associate owner discussion because I could facilitate it in a way that's productive because many times it will coach one of my young residents, okay, you're going to go out to dinner at Elvez with Dr. Rob Montgomery and you guys are going to talk about A, B, C, and D and you're going to come back to report. I'm going to say, what did Rob say? Well, he told me how much he likes to race horses on the weekends. I said, but you didn't bring me back any other information. So that, that's part of the problem too, is finding a way to connect those dots up front is, is, is a skill, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. Um, I wanted to ask you, Rob, about, before we get going, a lot of times from a legal perspective, and I don't know what to tell the residents, honestly, but I'm, my instinct is to tell them no, is that the owner dentist wants them to come and work in the practice for a day, have a working interview. What are some of the things you've seen with that or what are some of the thoughts you have on that? Uh, I think they're bad. At, at a couple different levels, you know, I, I could speak to the, the legal problems and I think you probably can share some practical practice owner sort of problems with that and what red flags you see. But uh, there are a lot of laws that you really have to take into consideration. You have to pay those people. You have to report their income. Uh, if they are employees, they have to be on your workers comp. Uh, you know, you can't just let somebody come in and treat patients in your practice and uh, have them not have the proper insurance, the right training. And because if something happens, God forbid, on that day, you know, uh, you could really be paying a steep price for that. I, I think it's important that you say that. And also the, 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 the worry that something happens, I know your, you know your world, you see a lot of things happen that are serious. In my world, things may just happen that are very annoying in the sense that you, know, you bring someone in for a working interview and you have them do crowns at someone else's treatment plan, even you. Now you've thrown a young dentist who's never been in your practice using the restaurant analogy, never used your cooking utensils. They're gonna to have to execute a crown on somebody that they don't know. They may not agree with the treatment plan. Then they have to prep the tooth for a crown, take the impression, who's gonna insert it? Are they gonna be back right. there for the working interview? Now at the end of the day, you kind of have this poor patient left in the lurch. Right. And sometimes you're done with good intentions, but they're just bad processes. In, our, in my world, I think, we always have the associate dentist come and observe, see how we do the system. But I think it's a red flag for associates is if an owner dentist even wants you to come in and execute high-level care because I think they don't have good systems in place. Because to me, I would never allow that to happen for everybody's sake, the patient, the staff, the, the associate dentist, and myself. What you mentioned about uh, their malpractice has to be notified because you know they have to have malpractice then. So sometimes that by the time they're being asked to do these working interviews, they haven't even obtained malpractice. And I think the best middle ground for this is to have them come in and be a hygienist for the day, put dot all the I's and cross all the T's with whatever legal needs they need, malpractice, insurance, licensing. But 
I put down, you know, everybody needs a cleaning. So you could be 20 years old, you could be 80 years old. They're relaxing routine visits. You get a chance to talk with the patients. The dentist gets to feel calm because they know they're not going to run late. They know how to do a cleaning. And then the owner dentist just see how it gets to see how they interact with patients. And it's, it's actually a really great tool for your staff to see how they interact with patients. Because one of the things that's interesting about dentists is sometimes they're actually excellent at doing clinical work, fillings, crowns, extractions, but their personality is not the right fit for your practice. And when you see them do the hygiene visits and they have to interact with the people and ask them about their families, sometimes you might know it's just not the practice for them. And right, it, and you can tell that from a hygiene procedure as opposed to somebody doing a crown. Yeah, much better because that's technical. Yeah, and right. it could go both ways. And I've been in the restaurant industry where I worked at a corporate Mexican place which developed my love of nachos. We can have a whole podcast just on that. It's, you know, There's ups, there's downs, it's an emotional time, but that's where I, I work for that. And if I used the same skill set that I did at a high-end restaurant, I would fail. You know, I couldn't go to tables and start having long conversations and asking them if they were here for an anniversary. It was a mid-level corporate environment where we gave good service, but I had to keep moving. But I also worked at a high-end Italian place where if I used the same skill set I used at the corporate Mexican place, they would fire me. So that's another important point where these owner dentists can kind of see these dentists in action and coach them accordingly. And, you know, sometimes in the dental world, and you know, maybe in the law world, you got to talker. And if your associate's a talker and you're an insurance-based practice, it may never work. Right. <laughs> it doesn't matter how good they are at it. So that's uh, my uh, input on that front. Good. Good stuff. Thanks for listening to another great podcast with The Dental Amigos. And don't forget to tune in next time to have the dental business demystified. If you're looking for more information about today's podcast, you can find it on thedentalamigos.com. If you're looking for Paul, you can find Paul at drpaulgoodman.com. And if you're looking for Rob, you can find him at yourdentallawyer.com. This podcast has been sponsored by Orange Line Media Group, helping dentists and other professionals create content people love. Find out how we can help you take your business to the next level at www.orangelinemg.com. Till next time.